Welcome to the last episode in the series, Workplace, Past, Present, and Future. Now, I have to say, this episode is bittersweet, as not only has it been my first full series on a topic, including first-time interviews, but it's also subject matter I really enjoy, as it encapsulates a combination of two favorite subjects, design, technology, and really how people interact within environments. However, you can bet I will continue to stay on top of this topic and bring updates when the time is right. Now, I do hope you were able to catch all of the episodes in the series, which included a history of workplace design, the evolution of remote working, and interviews from real estate and furniture design thought leaders. This has all led up to this episode, which is a brief summary of the series, but moreover, my own personal thoughts and ideas as to what the future of the office will potentially hold for all of us. Okay, as I said, I definitely recommend you go back and listen to the first several episodes in the series. However, let's look at a bit of a recap of specific points. You learned through the first two episodes in this series that how we work has certainly evolved and that's always adapted as society changed. And boy, has it. You hopefully learned in the second episode how psychology analytics led to how office furniture and ultimately how workplace design was created and evolved as society changed. I also dissected how we how work had changed from the Industrial Revolution, Taylorism, the Action Office, the Open Office, and activity-based working. Things certainly have changed quite a bit over time to where we are now. Now, if you think remote working is a big shift, try to keep in mind that coming out of the Great Depression, companies went from a six-day work week to a five-day work week. And at the time, that was thought to be pretty innovative. In the third episode, I discussed how remote working has changed how we work. I discussed how it began pre-pandemic and certainly how we army crawled through the pandemic to gray hybrid area that we find ourselves right now. Before I get to where I feel this is all heading, let's recall some of the pros and cons we still face. Obviously, flexibility. Remote work offers employees the flexibility to set their own schedules and work from locations of their own choice, no matter where it happens to be. Cost savings for remote work. Employees can save on commuting costs, work attire expenses, and daily lunch expenses. For myself, I know that's was one of the biggest. Increased job opportunities. Remote work opens up job opportunities pretty much all over the globe. And it's not relegated to one geographic place. Reduce commuting stress. The elimination of daily commutes can reduce stress and save time. Diverse talent pool. Companies can tap into a more diverse and global talent pool as opposed to the ones locally around them. Productivity gains. Some employees find they're most productive when working remotely, as we have been finding in the statistics over the last couple of years. Environmental benefits. Reducing commuting results in decreased carbon emissions contributing to environmental sustainability, which is important to a lot of people. Now, on the flip side, there are cons to remote working. Isolation and loneliness. Remote workers may experience feelings of isolation and loneliness due to being solely locked into a house or apartment all day. Distractions at the home. Home environments can be filled with distractions such as family, pets, household chores. Communication challenges. Effective communication can be more challenging when working remotely, leading to potential misunderstandings and miscommunication. 
lack of work boundaries, and this is a big one, remote workers struggle to sometimes establish clear boundaries between work and personal life since it's all happening under the same roof. Potential of security risks. Remote work can pose security risks as it may be more difficult for companies to control and protect sensitive data and information from remote areas. Career advancement and visibility. And this is an important one. Remote employees sometimes face challenges in terms of career advancement and visibility within the organization compared to those who are showing up every day. And one of the most important issues, mentoring, which I'll talk about a couple times in this episode, so I won't get it too deeply right now. Another one are technology issues. Technical problems such as internet outages or hardware malfunctions can completely disrupt somebody at home working remotely. And one thing that I talked about in a previous episode was what I called unintended human capital. And the last of the cons that I'll mention is one that I think is really, really important in that the office is symbiotic with our cities and towns. With the advent of remote working, it has certainly affected to some extent the decline of our major cities, meaning that with office workers not reporting, things like restaurants and retail simply can't survive. And the after effect of buildings being boarded up is that crime will move right in behind it. But I'll discuss this a little more later in this episode. So the question is, where are we right now statistically? Well, it's an interesting subject as it depends on really who you ask these days and what data you look at. It seems like remote work is here to stay, especially since that Pandora's box has already been opened and employees prefer to work remotely. However, statistically, company leaders who first implemented remote work are now having a bit of buyer's remorse. So here's a few stats just to chew on. What is a sweet spot? As I stated in my episode Evolution of Remote Working, statistics show that having people work from the office five days a week can increase production. However, it promotes fatigue and deficiencies, which can lead to attrition. Four days a week is a bit of a tipping point, with three days really being the sweet spot. Now, when employees are asking for employees to come in five days a week, only 50% are doing so, with four days or less a week are averaging 80% participation. When employees are asked, has working from home made it easier or harder to interview for a prospective new job? 46% said easier, 31% said no difference, and 23% said it was harder. In a recent research study conducted by IWG, says that 6 in 10 workers want to return to the office when employers allow it. However, the report also states that half of them would quit their jobs if required to work five days a week from the office. According to research ADECO, 74% of people now want a mix of office-based and remote working, and they want to spend 51% of their time in the office, and 49% working remotely. As flexibility is a big deal, interestingly, if their flexibility to work remotely were taken off the table, 66% of respondents would begin looking for a new job that better supports their priorities. Another 33% would quit altogether, which demonstrates that employee appreciation for more fluid approaches. The CNBC survey stated that only 2% of business leaders said their company never plans to require employees to work in person. 
According to the same study, a survey of 90% of companies plan a true return to the office policy by the end of 2024. So what does all this mean? Well, who the hell knows? There's obviously pent-up interest and demand for returning to the office. However, there still remains an employee resistance and hesitancy. So what are companies to do? So I believe in part, companies have to counter the media noise and resistance by understanding apprehension and reinforcing the bigger picture to their employees. In part, companies must now provide a reason to bring employees back. And I really love how Lori Powell stated in the last episode of the series that the office needs to be a magnet, not a mandate. Where some companies have gone wrong is to make mandatory return to work out of policy as opposed to necessity. By most indicators, the pure remote working is having a negative effect on production, mental health, employee development, and the overall office culture. In a unique way, I feel hybrid working has also exposed many companies' office culture. As I alluded to in a previous episode of this series, the pandemic had certainly accelerated in many cases what may have happened eventually in due time. This remote working is no different. As I seen this firsthand with employees that were starting to either recommend or force employees to return to the office. In this case, employers are struggling as to why the pushback or apprehension. At this point, I believe companies are realizing the important tangibles that are missing with pure remote working. And I'll illustrate to what I think are three of the biggies. The first being culture. And I think Tim K said it best in an episode in this series, that culture is not one thing, it's everything. Funny that more things change, the more they stay the same. During the years pre-pandemic, when interviewing young candidates, one of the first questions I would always get is, what is the culture like here? Which was always of paramount importance to younger staff. So why does culture matter? Companies that have strong documented cultures have employee engagement that are 21% more profitable, 17% more productive, and experience 60% less turnover, according to research at Gallup Meta-Analysis. Perhaps some employers are not mindful of the office culture they had prior to the pandemic. In this case, there could be a lack of self-awareness on some owners that perhaps employees did not wish to come back to the office they remembered prior to the stay-at-home directive. I state this as I have seen companies where employees were happy to come back and some, well, not so much. In my own knowledge of several companies in our area, I couldn't help but notice those employees that were happy to return had strong and healthy office cultures prior to the pandemic, and those who struggled to get employees to come back had a much, much different outcome. For those companies who disregard culture, keep in mind that at the end of 2022, almost 11% of employees stated that toxic culture was the top factor even above compensation for leaving. It is important certainly for all employees to show up and contribute to the identity of the office. The second is purpose. And purpose is behind the, quote, why in bringing employees back to the office. Companies shouldn't recommend or force employees back simply to have them sit in an office on Teams or Zoom meetings all day, as it gets back to defining the culture issue. Instead, you need to have some defined purpose in bringing people back. 
whether it's collaborative meetings, brainstorming sessions, and the most important, mentoring. And the third point is meaningful connections. Now, when I say connections, I'm not simply talking about the questionable meetings we used to have pre-pandemic, nor am I talking about the endless online meetings. Instead, I'm talking about real experiential connections and social interactions that help sustain an office culture. This can include the experiential collisions that include work-related and unwork-related work or production. I found that most robust and meaningful conversations often take place outside of the office. For example, at a coffee shop, a favorite lunch spot, or downtown in an outdoor public space. In this way, companies can foster environments for productive connections between employees and foster even more positive relationships between all parties. Hmm, what is the office of the future? My perception of the future office should be a habitat to all employees contingent on locality. It'll no longer be a, quote, place. Instead, it will be an idea. It will need to provide various communication opportunities and interconnective technology. The office of the future will have no specific physical space and will span many functioning and moving parts that will work cohesively together. What am I talking about, you ask? Okay, this may sound well thought through, unique and innovative. However, it's found all around us. And as usual, like all great things, it's simply found in nature. Therefore, what I've just described is a natural ecosystem, which has existed in nature for eons. In simple terms, an ecosystem is a geographic area where plants, animals, and other organisms, as well as weather and landscape, work together in harmony to form an overall bubble of life. Now, I'm not talking about butterfly effect kind of stuff. However, I use this as a depiction for how we will work in the future, as a natural ecosystem depends on every other factor around it, either directly or indirectly, to create a model for success. It doesn't matter if the ecosystem is vast or small, complex or simple, the principles always remain the same. My impression on the future of the corporate office is to really view it as a micro-ecosystem unto itself. My impression is that the workplace office will be more of a service than a space. And like most micro-ecosystems, it's part of a larger ecosystem that affects it. However, let's start with the corporate office ecosystem first. The corporate office as an ecosystem. In a diagrammatic sense, the office ecosystem, in my impression, can be derived and mimicked from examples of nature. The physical office should never go away as it is the company's base and identity, and that's important. To me, it's pivotal to keep a portion as a physical office space fosters in part corporate identity, culture, meaningful experiential collisions, connections, mentoring, and true, and I say true, collaboration. The office in this perceived ecosystem would still be the central focus with all the other collaborative functions interdependent on the base office. The new office, however, will have to be updated to create what must now be more of a living lab. If owners are looking to bring employees willingly into the office, 
they will have to do what Lori Powell said again, create a magnet, not a mandate. Therefore, since the new office more likely will not have the staffing numbers it once had, the focus will really need to be on comfort, health, and amenities. The new office will have to become a living lab that includes amenities such as larger gathering kitchens, outdoor spaces where applicable. The conference rooms that we once remember can now become living rooms with technology. If you're bringing people back to a new office, it will be to collaborate, not to sit at a desk with headphones. So what does this new physical office look like? The physical office, as I stated earlier, is not going away. It may in some cases be getting smaller and in some cases getting larger. But one thing's for sure, it's not going away. Instead, the office of the future can be thought of as the old town square. However, for companies to lure employees back, they need to provide an office that reinstates the important factors of collaboration, mentorship, experiential work in a physical place that's mentally healthy. In many cases, this can be accomplished with some of the following ideas. First, the large kitchenette. Now think of the kitchenette as a gathering space, not just a place to heat up food and sit there staring at a wall while you're having lunch. This should be a robust place to dine and gather both socially and for brainstorming. This can also, in some cases, be a space shared adjacent to the lobby and therefore can set the tone to clients as to what the culture is like at your new company. Outdoor spaces. Now, this is a tough one as not all spaces are conducive to allow such an outdoor space. However, there are opportunities for balcony or patio spaces that can be part of your physical office and, if possible, add vegetation and perhaps an outdoor kitchenette It is a great gathering area that also lends itself to fresh air, which is good for physical and mental health. Private huddle spaces. Pre-pandemic phone booth became popular as office didn't really have places for employees to hold private calls. Or in older open office concepts, the open office was just simply too noisy for private calls. The private huddle space is different. I see it more of a mini living room, something that's cozy for a single person to do focused, but also one where two people can collaborate. Such a room preferably will have soft seating and would include a large monitor and quality audio system to also bring in remote guests. Utilize hot desking to maximize space. Since statistics tell us that a minimum of 55% of the workforce would rather work from home, the office naturally is expected to shrink in size. However, this doesn't mean that you can't provide potential spaces for employees. And hot desking is a good option to double up two or even three people to a desk depending how scheduling is done. This way you can utilize more desk space and give back to either amenities or town hall space. Find spaces for relaxation or fitness. A fitness area is a great amenity space to add to a bustling office as it reduces stress and promotes mental and physical health. This doesn't mean having to put a Planet Fitness inside your office. Instead, it could be a small hotel-sized fitness area. These types of spaces now, I feel, can be offered by landlords, among other amenity spaces in the future of office buildings. If space is limited, no problem. 
offer an outdoor yoga class, or even provide fitness memberships to all or select employees. Offer more collaboration spaces. These are areas that will foster ideas for brainstorming sessions as they're more challenging to do remotely. In a more physical sense, the office ecosystem would include off-site collaboration spaces and focus spaces. These spaces would include, sure, your home that could be used for true focus work if that's your place of focus. Keep in mind that the home isn't the place of focus for everyone. Other places for focus can include a library, a co-working conference room. Additionally, with technology, the idea of collaboration can take place at really any location that can produce meaningful dialogue. Such spaces can include an open-air park, a coffee shop, favorite lunch spot, or even on the pickleball or disc golf course. Again, it's oftentimes about ideas, not isolation. These spaces are outside of the office. However, they can spur innovation and creativity while also promoting health. Therefore, in a sense, the office ecosystem is all of these combined. The physical living lab, the coffee shop, the park, the outdoor activity. They're separate places, yes, but at the same time, interdependent as the common thread and focus should be always on ideas, innovation, collaboration, and yes, meaningful focus production. Now last, technology. It can't be overstated enough that in office ecosystem, technology will be the connective tissue that makes it all work. The technology must work on two parallel planes. First, the tier of technology is the hidden infrastructure that will connect the various places that the employees work. As stated earlier, the workplace is in the office, yes, but anywhere you're productive. Whether going from the physical office to the car, which for a lot of people now is an office, or the park, or the golf course, the coffee shop, the airport, the technology will need to be seamless for all of them. It should not need many steps involved to jump from one place to the next. In my own case, my MiFi puck does a trick in most places. However, my car, personally, is a little dated and therefore can become a roadblock. Secondly, the technology that you see. This is the AI support software that can and should be available to you via your company as well as the remote video connectivity. How the corporate office affects the larger ecosystem. Now, as I stated earlier, ecosystems do interrelate, and none more than the relationship between the corporate office and the urban city. If you recall from the first episode in the series, the corporate office grew out of a necessity during the Industrial Revolution in Europe. Therefore, the office ecosystem will always have a symbiotic relationship to the city, and if the office declines, guess what? so do our major cities. For example, New York City's businesses are losing customers and revenue with people working remotely. The workers coming into Manhattan are spending 12.4 billion less per year than they were before the pandemic, according to Bloomberg report. Bloom's survey analysis indicates Big Apple workers are spending nearly $5,000 less per person in the areas near their offices, ranging from grabbing breakfast, ordering lunch, or taking clients to dinner. 
This signifies the largest loss per employee of any major city in the United States. And when businesses are down, tax revenue also declines. As a result, the city will have to cut back on municipal services. This means less hiring and accelerated job cuts to police officers, firefighters, sanitation workers, mass transit personnel, nurses, and teachers. And on a financial note, there is growing fear over the $20 trillion commercial real estate market. Higher interest rates and inflation are problematic to commercial real estate. Remote work left many commercial buildings empty as people work from home. Lower building occupancy results in falling property values. Now, much of the office inventory can be repurposed, which is a great thing for cities. However, as illustrated a moment ago, with the lack of density in our major cities, it creates a large vacuum where other elements creep in, such as empty buildings that become eyesores, restaurants and local businesses close, and then the potential for higher crime moves in. This phenomenon is most evident with government office space, as much of their space is located in major urban cities. The federal government currently owns over 460 million square feet of office space, many millions which are currently now sitting empty. The Government Accountability Office surveyed the 24 federal agencies that use the most of the federal government's buildings, and these include Departments of State, Commerce, Justice, Transportation, Homeland Security, and Education, as well as agencies like Social Security Administration, Environmental Protection Agency. Then, the GAO calculated the square footage of each agency's headquarters compared to its average in-person attendance during one week each in January, February, and March of 2023. The report found that on average, 17 of the 24 agencies surveyed used 25% or less of the available space in their headquarters buildings. Even agencies on the higher end only average between 40% and 49%. And this problem isn't unique to federal government. Washington, D.C.'s WTOP News reported in July that 18.9% of office buildings in the nation's capital are empty, a record high. In the first quarter of 2023, the vacancy rate in New York City rose to 16.1%, signifying 76 million square feet of empty office space. You may ask, why does the government office inventory matter to you and I? Well, all of us taxpayers are paying for it. Now, pivoting from the idea of creating an ecosystem for government office, which I still think is a viable solution for a new way the government should work. However, for our government, they have a unique opportunity as well. As building owners to consolidate many of their underutilized office space into one of several buildings, which has been a practice my team has been doing in our area with municipal clients by creating feasibility and spatial utilization studies, this will give the federal government the ability to create new office space that will act as a positive magnet to bring people back to the office and create a healthy office environment. This offers federal and local municipalities to sell back buildings to the private sector, which would help spur the local economies for either new businesses or adaptive reuse opportunities, which indirectly will boost the local tax base as many federal buildings are exempt from local taxes. 
Now, as I stated earlier, I will continue to release episodes on this particular subject in the future. My intention is to release content as I start to see points of evolution in the corporate office. Till then, here are a few points for employers to consider. Understand that people do want to work at the office, but only if it's how they want to work. People are the new amenity, not the office trend. To avoid remote working fatigue in your employees, perhaps offer a no remote virtual meeting day to foster more heads-down focus work. If you're going to redesign, redesign how you work and around the culture that you want to create. Don't assume everything is great. See if there's a disconnect between leadership and the office. Gen Zs aren't distracted or unmotivated. They just want to work on meaningful things. If you're gaining revenue from returning lease space, why not invest that revenue in employee amenity space or have tabs at places of business in the areas that surround your office? Perhaps offer gift cards to employees that have a favorite work spot, even near their house. In a small way, it would at least get them out of the house and around a social atmosphere from time to time. Now, as I close out this episode, I'd very much like to thank Tim Kay, Laurie Powell, and Megan Robinson again for being part of this series. And I hope you, the listeners, gained a lot from my content and certainly their insight. As always, I appreciate your support for Where Do We Go From Here? And if you're liking the content, absolutely subscribe and make sure to tell your friends to do the same. And thank you for those of you who have subscribed to my listener base as it is rapidly growing, so thank you again for that support. As a reminder, this podcast can be heard on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google, Amazon, and iHeartRadio. Furthermore, in the new year, I intend on posting on YouTube as well. I welcome your feedback and questions on this episode, and if you have ideas for future episodes, I'd love to hear them, because I am taking new suggestions for 2024 episodes. And if you want to let me know your ideas, contact me at C-A-T-A-L-L-O period S-C-O-T-T at gmail.com. That is Catello period Scott at gmail.com.